All right, good morning. All right, well, last week we made a, a great start to the new sermon series, uh, Holy Perseverance, a Long Obedience to a Living Hope. Uh, in that introduction, I, I wanted us to know that as believers that we've been called to a different kind of life, and that requires a different kind of faith, a persevering faith. Now, we all had fun laughing at how I shared that, that how disastrously I ran that quarter-mile uh, race trying to earn my spot on the team. I came in absolutely last, dead last. I ran the race wrong. Now, some of you laughed way too hard at that, okay? And I was like, oh, man, that's like a knife in the heart. And, and I think, I think I'm, I'm getting over it, you know. I think, I think. No, I am. I'm over it. I'm over it now. I know. I'm over it now. But I liken that struggle to the life of believers saying that we cannot run with Christ or run for Christ very well with circumstantial faith. That faith is too fragile. Life is too challenging. Certainly God directs clear, affirming circumstances uh, to start our faith journey. Uh, many of us had said, you know, we had an experience whether it was in a service or somewhere else uh, and it was like, man, I just know God met me here. God met me there. But we can't rely on circumstances and experiences uh, to do much more than start our faith journey and, and discern that now God is leading us in a different way. God is leading us and showing how much He values us through Christ. Uh, persevering faith runs a different race. It has eternity as its goal and the obedience to Christ as its path. You see, it's circumstances, it's not circumstances or experiences, but rather Jesus Christ, that he did what he did for us. That settles the question of who we are and who we are in him and what value we have and how it will live. Now, I cautioned us with a couple thoughts from uh, Pastor Andy Stanley I'll repeat those. Uh, he said, circumstances and experiences are not what we build our faith on or base our relationship with God on because over time, the sorrows of life and the tragedies of life will erode your faith and create a seeming randomness in your relationship with God so that you feel like you just can't trust Him anymore. And also because over time the temptations of sinful pleasures in this life will cause almost every single element of your faith to become inconvenient. That's the race of circumstantial faith. So today we're going to see that it's the power of God pouring through our proven, persevering faith that securely guards us and guides us into eternal, not earthly promises that God has for us. Now remember, Peter here is writing to strengthen and encourage these first century believers uh, who were facing persecution, some of them to the point of death. Others were repeatedly being taken advantage of. Financially, they were being cheated in business dealings, sometimes blatantly robbed. Uh, legally, they were taken advantage of as they were, they were denied restitution for past crimes against them. And they were denied protection from those future abuses. Physically, they were being brutalized and unjustly imprisoned. And I don't know about you, 
But being taken advantage of like that is not common to me. Uh, what I'm going to share is not even close to that, but I do remember in my early adulthood uh, being uh, cheated out of $2,000. Here's another embarrassing story about me. It was the mid-80s, and Al Gore had not invented the Internet yet. And I got a cold call from someone I later discovered was a rather unscrupulous financial consultant. Now, he told me that buying these call options for copper was a sure deal. It was going to return like 3 to 400% you know, uh, profit in six months. Now, I'm sure... Most financial consultants are wise and insightful and moral, so I'm not picking on that industry. But this one took advantage of me and others. He was later sued for it. I wasn't a part of that suit because I just counted it as a loss for a lesson learned. A $2,000 loss, lesson learned. Long story short, with no encouragement from this financial consultant, I mean, I did all the research I could. Uh, I looked at the copper industry. I looked at the copper price cycles for decades back. I looked for and found data on worldwide copper demand and worldwide copper production. I found a big disparity. There was going to be a significant shortage. And I saw that this shortage in the corresponding supply-demand cycle, uh, uh, price cycles spiked exactly seven years apart over the last 14 years. And that year, uh, and this year was the, the, the next seven-year price spike, and it was just waiting to happen. I mean, I was limitless. I was Bradley Cooper in Limitless. I even had more hair back then. Uh, and that consultant, he kind of find that, fanned that flame in me, you know, urging me to buy as many of these call options as I could. And I was tempted and pressured by this consultant who was getting commissions on all of these options. Uh, he was pressuring me to take money out of my long-term savings, too, to buy as many as I could. Well, Kim and I prayed about it. We opted only to buy the amount that we could from our short-term savings. But still, you know, 400% return on $2,000 of investment. That would enable us to pay the building fund pledge we had just made to the church and have some left over. So God must be in these circumstances, right? Well, within the first month, I could have sold the options and made a 15% profit. Thank you, Jesus. I could see him. He was already in these circumstances. Of course, that increase was sooner than expected, so the circumstances were indicating that copper would only go up. And God was obviously in these circumstances. So I was limitless, just waiting to maximize profit. But one thing I missed was a couple of mothballed copper mines in Chile. They came back online. The world's market was then flooded with copper, and my $2,000 worth of call options were worthless. I was limitless right up until the point that I wasn't. I was foolish, but I was also cheated because this guy, it was just like he gave me no risk disclosure. He didn't talk about how difficult it is to price commodities 
how high they're going, which direction the prices are going, uh, and all of that. Where was God in those circumstances? Looking back, I think God was unexpectedly refining copper and chili to refine and prove persevering faith in me. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 12. Maybe a helpful outline for us is something like this. Our title is, uh, is Our Living Hope. And first we see our glorious future inheritance, our present inexpressible joy, and the yearning in past revelation. So let me read the first five verses. Uh, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So starting in verse 3, going through verse 12, that's all one sentence in the Greek. It's a long declaration of praise. Here we have 10 verses where Peter, Peter is extolling the glory of God for his mercy, and then he just kind of unwraps that mercy, that gift of mercy. That gift of mercy is being born again and born too. This mercy is God giving, is not giving us the condemnation that we deserve but rather salvation. So there is new life now that leads to, progresses to, a living hope. So let's look at hope. Right, here's a reminder from our Advent series. There we said, hope is the joyful and confident expectation in God's promises. Hope is a God-honoring vision for better days that changes us in the present. So there's something more up ahead around the corner, not yet in sight, and it's good. That good future, that hope reaches in and transforms us now. That's the same hope Peter's talking about here. Uh, he just magnifies it, uh, shows it clearly with the word living. A living hope is a hope that has God-given life which can strengthen and empower us. It's also equated with an inheritance in verse 4. So what exactly is the inheritance? Well, in this slice, we're not going to know it all. In fact, we probably won't even understand it all. But a succinct way to say it is that our inheritance is in eternity a fusing, fusing of, of who we become with what we get when we realize our complete salvation in heaven. In the Bible, Christians are described as uh, the adopted children of God. And in their eternal state in heaven, that, that's spoken of as their inheritance. Our inheritance is every gift and promise that God our Father will bestow on us as proof of His love. And here's three kind of broad categories that help us understand. First, inheritance includes the fullness of God perfecting us. Meaning the eternal and glorified state of the elect you, me, whoever believes, this is about who we become. 
It's the glorified state of our own full being where we are morally and spiritually perfected. So the presence or effects of sin are all gone. And they will never be again. Amen? Amen. Uh, We're also going to have heavenly minds and a fullness of knowledge. No more seeing in part or seeing through a glass darkly. Perishable flesh and blood cannot inherit the imperishable. So our new imperishable bodies will never suffer decay. I'm going to have a full head of hair forever. Okay. Second, and this is part of what we get, is the, inherit- is the inheritance of a perfected spiritual family. Not only are we glorified in the fullness of our own beings, but we are surrounded by myriads of perfected, glorified brothers and sisters. The uh, perfectly glorified family is composed of people from every tongue and tribe and nation on this earth. We're not perfected alone. We're perfected together. It's a perfect international universal family. I mean, just imagine that. Third, and here's the other part of what we get, it's the eternal surroundings of heaven. It's the splendor of the heavenly realm where our triune God resides. It's His home. And all that He has magnificently and perfectly created and sustains. So Peter describes who we become and what we get in four ways here. And then they're totally different than any earthly inheritance. Peter tells us not what that inheritance is like, but what it is not like. Uh, For one thing, he calls it incorruptible, meaning not able to be destroyed. Uh, It can't be stolen, taken, robbed, plundered. Nothing can ruin it. Second, he calls it undefiled. It cannot be stained or polluted or cheapened in any way. It cannot be morally compromised or sinfully polluted. Sin and evil cannot touch it. Uh, It's also unfading, meaning not subject to decay. It won't grow old. Time can't touch it. It cannot wear out. It will never lose its supernatural vigor and beauty. It will never disappoint us in any way. And finally, it's kept in heaven. I mean, it's uh, it cannot be lost or taken. It is certain. It is safely reserved. This is who we become and what we get, as best maybe as I can describe it. Now, aren't we glad verse 5 does not read like this? Who by your own limited earthly power are being guarded through faith, meaning uh, all that God has for you, who you will become and what you'll get. Uh, Aren't you glad that it's not us who's responsible for protecting it? That would be like God telling us, Wow, do I have a great eternal existence for you. Relationships and responsibilities. Some of it you're just going to get a taste of here on earth, but all of this is yours in heaven. All you got to do is protect it yourself. Okay? Protect it yourself. Don't give up on it. And I'd be like, what? I mean, I can't even protect myself from the coronavirus, you know, much less do this. I mean, give me a trip through Marvel Universe, 
give me some superpowers, make me Superman or Iron Man, maybe then I'll stand a fighting chance. But God's saying, rest assured, your inheritance is safe with me, the father of the only limitless God-man. My power protects you, protects you and every blessing. And the Greek word there for guarded can mean both kept from escaping, but also protection, uh, protected from attack. And I think both kinds of guarding is what's intended here. So God is preserving true believers from apostatizing, escaping out of the kingdom, and protected, from, protected them from attack, um, protecting them from a loss of inheritance from something outside of them. God's continually using His power to guard His people by means of their faith. His power poured through your proven, persevering faith. It's, it's God's power. It's God's power that energizes and sustains individual, personal, persevering faith all the way through to our heavenly existence. We're to rely on Jesus' completed work on the cross along with suffering in this life to let God grow and prove our persevering faith. God doesn't pamper us. He guards us with His power until we receive our full heavenly salvation. Verse 6 is a great transition when it says, In this you rejoice. Yes, we do rejoice greatly. And this refers to all that Peter's been saying in the verses 3 through 5. So let's look at where Peter's going to take us before we receive this eternal inheritance. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have, see, though you have see, not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. In verse 6, we, we read that phrase, in this you rejoice. Uh, the this is the great mercy of being born again, being alive to God now and forever, and all of those promises. So where Peter is taking us before we receive that amazing inheritance uh, held securely for us in heaven is that he's taking us through the fire of suffering. There can be significant pain and sorrow and grief in this life. Those various trials refer to things like being falsely spoken against, maligned, unjustly reviled, being physically beaten or imprisoned. So we hear Peter saying that somehow various trials are like fire. And right, right away we may go, preach it, Peter. I mean, that's great stuff. Trials hurt. Fires hurt. We get it. Our pain in the trials is like the pain of fire burning. Except that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is not comparing the pain of fire to the pain of life. Peter is comparing the fires 
proving and refining effect on gold to the various trials proving and refining effect on our faith. Big difference. He's not ignoring the pain. The pain is just not the main thing. His emphasis is on the tested, proven genuineness, the perseverance of our faith, which results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus returns, when he comes again, our proven, persevering faith, that God's power has flowed through our whole uh, life, surprisingly, that gets Jesus' praise, glory, and honor. He's praising and honoring us. This is Jesus' parable about the return of the master and his commendation for the faithful servant. Remember what the master tells his servant there? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I can hardly wait. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about that. And that's the point, okay? Me, you, in the midst of grief, brought about by being painfully and unjustly treated, we experience joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. This is not experiencing joy instead of pain. No, this is about experiencing joy amidst pain. Uh, this is suffering that, flame, that inflames glory-filled, unspeakable joy. Uh, we can rejoice now like Jesus did. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is the joy now that, that takes the sting out of death, takes the victory out of the grave. So Peter anchors our joy through persevering belief in our future with Jesus. And now he gives us two more reasons that we can prevail through the living hope of our salvation. Let's look at these last three verses, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter knows the strength that can come from God's past work through his prophets on earth and his angels in heaven. I mean, we're not alone in keenly looking ahead to a future salvation. Uh, Moses and the other prophets wrote of God's work in the past and, and how they pointed to the coming king and the, the coming kingdom of God. What they knew and what we need to know is the accounts of those biblical people. Their lives that we read about are not really examples to be followed. All their stories are true, but every story is insufficient in itself to transform us. It might reform us a little, maybe. 
but not give us life-changing transformation. About 20 years ago, Tim Keller wrote something that I'm just going to summarize here. He just kind of runs through some of the biblical accounts of uh, uh, Old Testament characters, and he's, he notes where they fail, but where Jesus succeeds. He starts off with, I remember the story of Adam? I mean, Adam faced a test in the garden, and he failed, dragging all of mankind into sin. But Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus, too, faced a test in the garden, but Jesus was sacrificially obedient. He didn't fail, but victorious, victoriously brought us out of sin. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the, the true and better Abel, too. He's the innocent, slain one whose blood cries out, but not for commendation, or not for condemnation uh, as against Cain. Jesus' blood cries out for grace and acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, whose father just didn't raise a dagger over him, but brought it down on him that it didn't come to us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who stands at the right hand of the throne and forgives and saves the ones who betrayed him. Remember that? Jesus is the true and better Jonah, Jesus who willingly went into the belly of the earth to save us. Can we see that? And Esther? Esther risked losing the palace saying, if I perish, I perish. In order to save her people from extermination. But Jesus Christ gave up heaven, the ultimate palace. And he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish. In order to save all who would believe. Every prophet, every priest, every king, everything points to Jesus. That is who will change you. Now, the angels, I mean, they never cease longing to know more. It's the unfathomable question of God's mercy to sacrifice himself, his son, for a fallen, sinful mankind. Angels seeking and asking, why did he do that? And and, and how does he continue to do that? And they just turn every facet of this glorious jewel of mercy over. Facets of mercy which are new every morning. And when the next one is seeing the angels respond in glorious praise, no wonder they can't get enough. So this is praise to God for His mercy, the panoramic view of our eternal inheritance, and the glorious and curious search for understanding. That's the text that comes to us. So as I wrap up our time, maybe a good question is, what do we do with all of this? Now, the Apostle Peter wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to be obedient to Jesus. Peter points out that trials and pains are going to expose where our hope is. And for some of us, our hope is simply that we want our circumstances to change. Now we think, man, one day I'm going to get the recognition I deserve. One day, people will really like me. One day, I'll have a good job. One day, I'll be married. One day, 
I'll be free from this physical battle and be healed. But for those of us who have a living hope, we don't depend on circumstances improving in this life. For those who are inspired, uh, for, for those who are inspired by our living hope, we rejoice not in the absence of suffering, but even in the midst of suffering. For those, their eternal existence being imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that inheritance is promised and is protected by God Himself. Uh, last week we read in verse 2 that the work of the Holy Spirit is associated with our sanctification, uh, our progressively being made holy, of uh, being obedient, uh, transformed to the likeness of Christ. So how about I use Jesus' own words to help us out here. The words he preached when he first spoke in public. There he said things like this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a turning away from something and a turning to something else. The kingdom of heaven is a way to describe our inheritance. That inheritance, in part, is available to us now. Amazingly, some of the good that God promises us in fullness only in eternity, some of that is offered and available to us now. So repentance, <coughs> excuse me, looks like turning away from false hopes of this world that will really never satisfy. And it looks like pursuing our promised living Application questions for us could be like this. How might you be setting your heart on false hopes? Uh, what this world values. Those hopes will deceive you and they will fail you. Maybe from the more positive perspective is how can you more faithfully and courageously lean into your living hope? What God promises to reward. Let's ponder those as I close our time in prayer. Father, as we have looked into your word, we, uh, we're thankful for a number of things that we want to uh, praise you just like Peter does. Our desire is to, to look into this mercy that you have provided that not only does it enable us to rise above the the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, uh, but it allows others also. Father, as TCBC looks to the future in pursuing Christ together, we have to, got to recognize that, man, our inheritance is secure. But it's not secure just for me. It's secure for all of us. And so, Father, may that hope transform us. May we recognize that uh, your living hope is to call to every tongue and tribe and nation. And so our spiritual family right now is going to be very beautifully diverse. May we pursue Christ together.